Hello, welcome to another episode of the Tai Chi Notebook podcast. Now, Bruce Lee will be no stranger to anybody listening to this podcast. Even 50 years after his death, he remains the most famous martial artist in the world. But could he actually fight? World champions in karate competition have gone on record to point out that he never once competed in tournaments. So, were his martial abilities merely a trick of the camera? My guest for this episode is Bruce Lee authority and best-selling author John Little. John has a new book out called Wrath of the Dragon, The Real Fights of Bruce Lee, in which he takes a hard look at Bruce Lee's real fights to definitively answer these questions. To get the first-hand accounts in the book, John has tracked down over 30 witnesses to the real fights of Bruce Lee, as well as those who were present at his many sparring sessions. There are over 30 years of research in the book, and it took him thousands of miles around the globe. So here's the man himself to tell you more. John Little, what a pleasure it is to meet you. How are you doing? I'm well, Graham. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm in the UK, where it's very hot. And you're in Canada, I believe. I am. I understand the UK actually is hotter today than it is in Greece, which is odd. So. Oh, yeah. Well, they had a the load of wildfires there. And while that was happening, it was raining here. So <laughs> everything's gone upside down. <laughs> yeah. No kidding. Well, uh, thank you for, for having me on your podcast. And uh, I understand you're uh, not only an internal arts practitioner, but also a, a Brazilian jiu-jitsu practitioner as well. Yeah, I am. I'm a practitioner of Chinese arts in the lineage of Wong Jack Man, who oh. had that legendary fight with Bruce. Which what do you mean, the, from the Tai Chi one or the Northern Shaolin? Kind of both mixed together, but mainly the Tai Chi. Oh, okay. It's yeah. the, the Guru Zhang Tai Chi style is the one right. I knew. Um, but we, he also passed down a few, well, my teacher passed down a few Northern Shaolin forms as well, which we, we practiced like the two-man form and a uh, straight sword form. So it's a bit of a mix of everything. And the, and the Choi Li Fat from his lineage as well. Oh, wow. Well, yeah. that's pretty cool. It's um, always interesting to uh, have 20th century connections to, well, I mean, most of the arts that we know of came into being, for the most part, in the 20th century, even though they all of them claim lineage going back thousands of years in some cases. Hard, yeah. hard to prove the further it goes back, and they sort of trail off into the dual mists of uh, legend and, and myth, you know. Um, I was, I remember visiting... The Shaolin Temple uh, back in, uh, oh God, 2009. You know, that, of course, being from the West, we're very ignorant. My knowledge of it was from the Kung Fu TV series and then Jet Li and all of these people. And, of course, there was very little in the 70s to read about the actual Shaolin because it, uh, it was in ruins pretty much leading up into the 70s. And then when the Kung Fu boom hit, it became a tourist place, but it was still pretty cool to walk up to the cave where Bodhidharma was and uh, trace that lineage, if you mm. will. Even if it's mythological, it's still pretty cool to uh, experience that. It, it does sort of kindle a, a certain magic, which for me, has always I've always had sort of a love-hate relationship with the martial arts. But the love part always comes from that magical component. Mm. It just seems to excite the imagination and to be at Shaolin was 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 pretty cool and and, and the same way your Tai Chi I've always been impressed by and uh, there were elements of Wing Chun that did that for me 
but uh, I, I always, I've always had a huge respect for Tai Chi practitioners because it, it seemed to offer much more than just a better way to punch somebody in the mouth. Yeah. You know? So anyway, sorry, I'm meandering. That's fine. Yeah. No, there's, there's a lot of depth in Tai Chi, which is, which is uh, interesting. Oh, we should just tell the listeners why you're, why we're talking together, because you've written an, another book, which is the wrath of the dragon. It's coming out soon in the UK. Is it already out in the States? It'll be out this week. I think the 5th of September. So tomorrow it'll be out. Brilliant. I'll be honest. When I saw the title, I thought, Oh no, he's, done a whole book on Bruce Lee's fights. There can't be much in that. And then I'm holding the book and reading it and thinking, this is amazing. This, this it's, it's so thick and your footnotes are incredible. You've got footnotes for every reference that's said in there, which is brilliant. So, you know, if you, if you read any account of anything to do with a fight of Bruce Lee, you can just go and check out who exactly said it and when, and it's all catalogued there, which is great. So was this like a labor of love for you? Yeah, I mean, it was. It's funny. I was one of those guys. I mean, I'm an early Bruce Lee fan. I saw Enter the Dragon when it first premiered in the theaters, you know, mm. so that's how old I am. As I mentioned, I think in the earlier, in an early chapter in that book, that uh, once the Kung Fu explosion hit, and I know it was that way in the UK, but in North America, uh, it went from being nothing, literally zero to a karate school on every corner. Mm. And, uh, and then Taekwondo followed. And it was very aggressive. Even back then, it was business. You know, it was all about business. But to us, who had walked out of the theater seeing this never-before-seen form of uh, self-defense, uh, we had anything. You know, we, need, we were ravenous for information on it. Mm. So anyway, fast-forwarding, I went to the karate school, and of course, they had a poster of Bruce Lee uh, near the change room, which beckoned people in and to pay for lessons. But uh, there was already starting a backlash against Bruce from practitioners of certain styles. And our style there was Shido Ru, which is a Japanese karate style. And uh, I remember sitting in the little foyer area waiting for class to begin. And I was very proud yellow belt at the time. And uh, <laughs> the fellow who was about 40, no, nah, 30, uh, was a green belt. And as we were sitting in the lobby, or as I was, uh, he walked in and they had, you know, a little table with martial arts magazines, Karate Illustrated, Black Belt. And he picked up Karate Illustrated and he must have heard me speaking about Bruce Lee. Because mm. uh, in those days, if we weren't talking about Bruce Lee, we weren't having a conversation. So... He, he heard me and said, well, Bruce Lee couldn't fight. And I was like, what do you mean? He said, well, you know, he's uh, any time these uh, Chinese, he called them poison finger bullshit artists, uh, <laughs> went over to Thailand, they get you know, carried out in a stretcher and they're not fighters. And um, if you want to see a real fighter, he said, and he threw this magazine at me. He said, that guy's a real fighter. And I looked at it, it was Joe Lewis on the cover in a karate tournament. And I didn't know. I mm. mean, what did I know in 1974? You know, I mean, I think Linda's book had been out and she touched on the fact that he had a few fights in Hong Kong when he was younger. And I mean, who didn't have fights when they were younger? And that uh, he'd had a fight in Oakland with Wong Jack Man. 
and I think she may have referenced an encounter with an extra on the set of End of the Dragon, but that was it. Hmm. And certainly, if that's your database and you put that against someone like a Chuck Norris or a Joe Lewis or anybody that fought quasi-professionally, um, the records pale in comparison. You know, uh, guys like Hayward Nishioka, the judo man, he was a Pan Am gold medalist in judo. You know, he was at the top of the heap. Bruce had no trophy that he could bring forth. So I felt I had no, I had no reply to this guy. I just was too ignorant. I didn't know. And so ever since then, you could say, the idea to, prov <laughs> to provide an answer to this green belt has been percolating in my mind. And so now it's finally come out. Oh, that's amazing. So um, it's a real catalogue. It's every single scrap he got into that anyone saw. Because he was basically fighting people all the time, having scraps all the time, it's essentially a, a sort of, it's the story of his life, really. And it starts off in Hong Kong when he's at school. And there's, there are several encounters where he's at school having fights with people. And, and then fighting amongst Kung Fu students in Hong Kong once he starts learning Kung Fu. Right. Um, and all these fights, they're, they're pretty serious. I mean, they're, you know, he's always flipping out a knife or, or something yeah. at the same time and threatening to kill people. It's, yeah. it's not just sort of a sporting type encounter, oh, not, is it? Not at all. No, not at all. I, I suspect, and I, I, I allude to it in the book, that I think his early, very early years contributed to that aggression in him. Mm. Uh, he was born with an undescended testicle to begin with. His parents were very superstitious and believed that bringing a young boy into the world made them a target for demons that mm. would come to steal the souls because they had lost a, a son uh, at a very early age, shortly after he'd been born. So the belief then was that the spirits, whoever these evil spirits were, were after the souls of young boys, young girls not so much, evidently. And so in order to confuse the spirits, they dressed Bruce as a girl. They called him Saipong, which is a feminine uh, name. Uh, they sent him to a girl's public school. They put a dress on him at night before he went to bed. They, had a, they pierced his ear. And he had to endure this uh, gender-confusing orientation uh, up until his ninth birthday. Mm. So I think once the pretense of gender was dropped at the ninth birthday, he was determined to prove to everybody that he was male. Mm. Um, you know, and so what were the male characteristics? Well, you're, you're tough, you speak with authority, uh, you're strong, and you fight. And that's what he did. I, I suspect a psychologist could make a case study about that on Bruce because it was an attitude that he carried with him right up until the day he died. He mm. never refused a challenge. Well, I mean, professional fighters get challenged all the time. They don't accept them mm. because they're prize fighters. It's like, you want to put a million dollars on the table? Sure, we'll yeah, talk. I'm not going to fight you for free. <laughs> yeah, I'm fight for free. Bruce never had that. For him, it was, if someone challenged him, they were challenging his masculinity. They were challenging uh, his identity as as male. And therefore, it was on, you know. Mm. And, and uh, you can see that, you know, all throughout, well, not only throughout the book, but more specifically throughout his life. 
he could not refuse a challenge. No, that's the impression I'm getting. (laughs) So, yeah, that was, uh, that to me was an interesting thing. And the other interesting thing is, to me, was how obsessed, almost pathologically obsessed he was with fighting. You know, like people like yourselves who are in the arts in a big way and trained diligently for decades and look deeper into, say, the Tai Chi classics or the whatever to learn more about it. That's one thing. But what he would do was take everything had to relate to fighting, everything, his daily life. If he walked into a party, he'd immediately size up everybody in the room. Who's a threat? Who's not a threat? How would I take this guy out? If he's out eating, he's working on broken rhythm in terms of observing how people eat, what what rhythms they use in their movements. And then he makes sounds in between the beat of this movement so that he could intercept them. You know, he had created electrical devices in which loud sounds played in one ear and dripping water played in the other. And he would crank up the loud sounds, and but still focus so he could just hear the dripping water so that in a fight he could focus on, you know, just what he needed to be focused on. And, and the background would just be uh, bleed out to white noise. You know, and, and there's so many examples of that. You know, creating devices, electrical zap machines where for finger thrust <laughs> could cut your hands or you could get a, a pretty major electric shock if you weren't quick enough to get it in and out. Um, this guy was training for a fight 24-7 um, oh. since he was old enough, uh, well, since he was eight, nine years old almost. So yeah. it's, that's why he became so good at fighting. Um, I can't think of anyone else. I can't think of a martial arts champion, an MMA champion that trains uh, and thinks fighting 24-7, 365 days of the year for decades at a time. Hmm. They they train for several, you know, six, seven, eight weeks to get ready for a fight. And then afterwards, it's decompression time. Uh, Bruce didn't have that. There was no off switch. Yeah. I mean, the, the whole thing of his childhood was something I got from this book that was like a revelation about how he how he was and why he was like that you know everything you just talked about so i've got a lot of viewers who do tai chi and bruce's father was a tai chi practitioner and that was his first introduction to martial arts wasn't it as you describe i thought that was quite interesting as well that a lot of the philosophical side of his writing i think owes a lot to tai chi i I would agree with that Uh, in fact daniel lee who was a student of bruce's in la was a Yang-style Tai Chi practitioner. He said that to me. And, I mean, there's video. Bruce had one of these old first-generation video cameras, you know, with the big reel-to-reel tapes. Hmm. And you see some of them on YouTube now. You know, there's Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and Herb Jackson and Danny Inosano and all these guys in Bruce's backyard in Bel Air. What hasn't been posted yet is also from that time in Bruce's life where he filmed Dan doing the entire Yang Tai Chi form. So he he was very interested. I mean, he mentioned it in the Pierre Burton interview, Tai Chi, and uh, thought it was a good thing for people to uh, look after their bodies and uh, you know practice it. And uh, of course, he was, he was very familiar with it. He, he practiced it not only in Hong Kong, but again in Seattle. Mm. He, I think he... he also, uh, and he was also into, uh, uh, I don't know if it was uh, Xing Yi or not, but it, it was certainly breathing and meditation. And 
he would close his classes with that. Hmm. Uh, so that was always part of it. There, I mean, there was this conflict within him of hard and soft, if you will. That the hard is, is perhaps you can attest in a grappling art, uh, serves a certain certain purpose. But there are certain principles and truths from the soft art that are not invalidated by the hard art. Uh, hmm. And I think that was that was within him. You often see in his writings about leading the opponent to defeat himself. Uh, I mean, that's Tai Chi, right? Yeah, and then, yeah. And the, I mean, the yin-yang symbol, even in his Jeet Kune Do emblem, why was that there? Why was the grand terminus presented uh, in the very nucleus of his art? Um, so I, I, I suspect that Bruce had a love for Tai Chi, but he was he was so obsessed with fighting that, that again, deflecting an opponent's incoming energy and rolling with it just didn't appeal to a young mind. It was get at it. Uh, I'm not waiting for someone to come to me. I'll initiate all of the sort of stuff. So he, it's funny. He his fight with uh, Nakachi in Seattle was basically a result of Bruce defending the soft arts of China. Mm. Uh, a lecture talking about how, in the Chinese perspective, the, the so-called internal arts or soft arts uh, were considered superior. Again, because it was almost, it was being more in accord with the Tao, right? The, mm. the of things. As Alan Watts said, it was instead of swimming against the current, you put up a sail and learn to use nature to get you to your destination. You tack, right? And uh, He was um, a karate uh, master, wasn't he? The guy he had that fight with. Yes, the, the, in, in Seattle, yeah. yeah. He was not only a karate master, he was a, he was a second degree black belt in judo. Mm. So. A, I guess a mixed martial artist and according to Jesse Glover a pretty tough guy a guy who fought around Seattle against people armed with knives and mm. things like that and was not a guy to be taken lightly but again I think in discussing Bruce I mean his obsession made him his obsession with fighting made him with his own genetic attributes like speed a, a phenom mm. a, a great fighter, if you will. Whereas most fighters have an aptitude for fighting, which is why they go into it. And they were very good, in some cases, exceptional. But Bruce was great. He was a different, he was a different level. And, and a lot of it has to do, I think, with the psychology. It was just, he didn't, there was no fear in the man. And he had this amazing speed. I mean, it had to be God given because a lot of people have, have read about his training methods and, and applied them, but they don't have his speed. Hmm. Uh, I think it was a, uh, a distance of five feet and eight one hundredths of a second or something like that. Was his yeah, it's in the book, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. And a lot of it is, as you know, being a martial artist, if someone launches an attack at you, immediately your subconscious is on hyperdrive. What do you do? Do you step hmm. back? Can you block it? Can you evade it? Can you intercept it? But by the time, even though that, that occurs at, at you know, microprocessing speed, it, there's, a, there's a lag time between when something is perceived and when you react to it. And the problem for most people, martial artists in particular, when they stood in front of Bruce, was he was just too fast. If someone threw a looping haymaker, you have no problem. Mm. But 
something's coming at you at that speed, by the time you're about to react, he's he's 15 feet away again after having struck you. Yeah. So it, it, it was it was an attribute that people could not defend against. Mm. And when you take that kind of speed with a guy who diligently practices, in some cases, you know, thousands and thousands of, let's say, a finger jab, he will blind you, you know, and that's just a simple, simple fact. And there's not really much he could have done. It's interesting that, I mean, I have, I was lucky enough to study a bit of Wing Chun just for a few weeks with a guy local to me. And the first thing he did was show us a video of Bruce Lee. Um, uh-huh. The famous bit from Enter the Dragon where he's over O'Hara and he's back, yeah. back you know, across palms and he does that really fast sort of pak and strike. Right. Um, and he, he just kind of went like, that's it. That's what we're going to do. That is it. And his whole thing was very speed-based. Um, yeah. Which The narrative you tend to read about Bruce is that he started with Wing Chun and evolved it using western methods into this other thing and and i was just struck by uh, talking to this guy this guy he's a, a chinese guy and he didn't really have much english so we had to kind of communicate through his girlfriend and it was <laughs> hilarious mistranslations all the time which was really funny what i was struck by was how rooted in wing chung all that fast speed based approach actually is and i'd never really appreciated that. I thought Wing Chun was more about sensitivity and angles and and but uh, you know, I think a lot of it is what Bruce was doing a lot of it it's it is core Wing Chun it's the very straight fast straight at your face um, mm-hmm. you know that's that sort of style there was a distinction between Wing Chun and Jeet Kune Do uh, if you look I mean in the book there is a photo of two of Bruce's students one an early one one later one, Ted Wong and Taki Kimura, and look mm. at the stance that they're in. It's, they're completely different. Um, Jeet Kune Do, if there was a, a main difference, was mobility. That was a big thing for Bruce. Wing Chun, you are like in Tai Chi, you're rooted, and it's the triangle. That's where you get your power from. And the footwork always maintains that base so that you, you strike with authority. It is, or was, largely a... Well, it, I was going to say a defensive art in the sense that you responded to your opponent. And that's where the sensitivity training came in. So you would, you would be in a position, he would make a move, and then you would react. And if you read certain parts of the book, that's what Bruce did. He would take a swing at me. As soon as the guy launched his offensive, Bruce's counteroffensive was Wing Chun. Hmm. But, you know, the thing is, once that's impressed into your neural system, it's not going away. You know, it's not like, oh, not going to do that anymore. If someone had grabbed him in a bar at close quarters, it would have been Wing Chun completely. You know, it would have been, you know, Pak Sao, Lop Sao, uh, strike. That, that was just part of his arsenal at that point. But what he did as he progressed, and again, it was about fighting to him. If it worked in a fight, that's what he was interested in, especially if it worked in a fight for someone with his attributes. So what he discovered once he was in Los Angeles, was that mobility opened up new lanes of attack. You didn't have to wait for someone to come to you. Not only could you go to go to them, uh, he learned from fencing with uh, a stop hit or uh, that, those principles. But if you were mobile, you didn't even need to block. Like the, the idea mm-hmm. of 
blocking and hitting simultaneously, which is part of Wing Chun. Um, he didn't feel that was necessary. It was good if, if, if the range permitted it, but mobility would negate the need for that. And it also opened up these lanes of attack that didn't exist when you're moving linearly. So, mm. for example, a high kick in when you're square to an opponent may not be practical. But a high kick, if you're able to move laterally, could be very effective. So Bruce started working on incorporating those elements. And as he told Dan Lee, what it amounted to essentially was if you can move with your tools, mobility, then you know the the easier it is to land on the opponent and the yeah. more clumsy the opponent the less mobile the opponent the easier for you to pot shot it and so it's as jesse glover called it he was in the later stages he was fencing with his feet or his and his hands and feet that's basically what it was if there was a hole he could fill it hmm. and mobility allowed him to find more holes but uh to your point about wing chun it never, I mean, Bruce had a, had an affection for that art that is pretty clear. You know, in 1971 to 72, I mean, he'd written a book about it. He didn't write, you know, he, he took photos, thousands of photos for a book on Jeet Kune Do, but he never published it. But he did take the time to write a book on Wing Chun. Mm. So he, Wing Chun had, uh, was very dear to his heart. He agreed with a lot of the principles. I mean, in a 1969 article in the Black Belt, Black Belt magazine, he was demonstrating Chi Sao. So if he didn't like Wing Chun, why was he doing it? You know, mm. what, why wasn't that tossed on the ash heap along with you know, other classical methods, so-called, that he didn't find effective? So clearly, Wing Chun and its certain principles and techniques, he kept. And he just found a, a way to apply them in some respects that hadn't existed previously like in 1965 he writes to his friend and uh, assistant instructor james lee that he had found a way to bridge the gap to initiate tactile strikes because sometimes if a guy's not going to come to you you can't you don't have that opportunity but with this type of principle and footwork he found he could he could initiate contact which would allow him to implement those techniques. So Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so Wing Chun was... I mean, the, a lot of Wing Chun people don't like Bruce. And it's funny, it's a love-hate there as well because he's good for business. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but, but, you know, the knock is, oh, he never learned the whole system. And it's like, well, he learned enough of it to be able to beat the hell out of anyone that was doing Wing Chun and had learned the whole system at the time. Yeah, know? yeah. And that was all he was interested in. He didn't go into Wing Chun to learn the art and to learn about Nung Moi or the Shaolin Temple. He went into it to learn a better way to fight. Of all his students, the one that I've always had a soft spot for is Jesse Glover. And yeah. you reading your book, the quotes from Jesse Glover are brilliant. And it just makes me like him more. Yeah. He's so down to earth and unassuming. Um, Jesse, to me, was maybe one of Bruce's students who really understood Bruce. His uh, his book, Between Wing Chun and Jeet Kune Do, to me, is the best biography on Bruce that's ever been written. Okay. Yeah, it was, and he was a knowledgeable guy. He was like a sponge. He spent so much time with Bruce from 59 to about 62 or so, and just picked his brain. He wanted to know about Kung Fu generally, 
the origins of it, the, the uh, practitioners of it, what the different styles did. And Bruce knew all this. He almost had an encyclopedic knowledge of it. And in particular, he wanted to learn what style of Kung Fu Bruce found to be the most effective, which, of course, at that time was Wing Chun. But he was also there during a lot of Bruce's development. Like, uh, was it, I remember him talking about how Bruce in, the, in those early years believed in Qi and was trying to cultivate it. Whereas in his later years, he poo-pooed it. But it's very interesting to, it, it, there was a movie called Backbeat about the Beatles before they became the Beatles. Yeah, I saw it. And that's kind of how I saw Jesse in this. Mm. He was there before Bruce became Bruce. Yeah. And when the various personalities of the Fab Four were developing, you know, that's when this movie was, was set. And it was fascinating. And uh, I think in a similar way, that, that was Jesse's role. But he was very knowledgeable, and, 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 and because he understood fighting in the large, he also understood Bruce's later writings and teachings, even though they differed somewhat from when he was in Seattle. There's this fascinating bit where he, it's, it's him and James DeMille are criticizing Bruce's teaching because he's, he's, he's holding things back. When, once he opened a, a school that had a large number of students instead of a close group, they noticed that he was sort of holding things back and it wasn't quite the same. That's an interesting perspective. That's a real insider sort of looking looking at something, isn't it? Yeah. Well, to them, I mean, Bruce was their buddy, right? So as a buddy who had this knowledge that you're interested in, you just exchange, he'd exchange information freely. And the classroom in those days, anywhere they happened to be, hmm. school, Jesse's house, outside a movie theater, a parking lot, Bruce would show them and answer any question they had about self-defense to the best of his ability to do so. But when he opened a school, there had to be a curriculum. There had to be some regimentation. There had to be certain lessons that were taught on a progressive basis. And all of the students had to get it to move along the path of progression. And so they found that this was not what they were interested in. They wanted the old Bruce, the, hey, what do I do if a guy does this? You know, what a, if, a, you know, if this comes in, was a, you know, was there a, is there a Chinese martial art that dealt with this? You know, how, when did they, what kind of kicks did they use or that? That was out. You know, this was, here's a curriculum. And if I'm not there to teach it, you know, Taki will teach it. And uh, we're going to do, we're going to learn a little bit about, uh, uh, Chinese culture, a little bit about Chinese phraseology, a little bit about meditation, a little bit about fitness, uh, the non-straining type of fitness, and uh, then we're going to work on our stance, and then we're going to, you know, it was very regimented, and that wasn't what they were in there. They were like, what do we care about meditation? You know, <laughs> you know they're 19 years old. You know, they want yeah. to go into a tough area of town on Saturday night. They'd they're not going to talk meditation with some drunken sailor at a seaport. You know, they're going to, they're going to want to know how to take the guy out in a matter of seconds. So mm. uh, there was that, that's kind of what led to the split of those, of Jesse and Bruce. Yeah. So, um, like one fight I've got to ask about is, is the Oakland one with Wong Jack Man. Yeah. Because that's the famous one. I mean, that's the one everyone knows about because there have been films about just that fight, haven't there? Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah, and also because my Tai Chi lineage is from the the Wong Jack Man lineage, which I only found out years later. I kind of put the pieces together and went, "Oh, 
he was doing our style. So <laughs> that was interesting. There, there are so many different accounts of that fight. And mm. you've got, you've just got kind of in your, in your book, there's, you just run for it once. I thought what maybe you might do is run for it from different perspectives several times, but you just kind of, either you've picked one or you've put one together. Which way did it work for you? Well, in doing that fight, for the very reasons you indicated, I amassed all of the testimony I could find on that fight, which ran to, I want to say, 60 pages. Yeah. And then I looked for what was corroborated. Okay. And if it wasn't corroborated, it was out. And, and also not just corroborated as in, say, James Lee and Linda Lee. You know, because yes. that, that's, they, they would have a bias, of course. Yeah. But when, um, oh, help me here, the fellow that, that basically brokered the fight, the middleman, David Chin? David Chin, yeah. Yeah. When he came on board, and he really didn't have skin in the game for Bruce Lee, to me, it was game over on that. That looked pretty obvious because in the early days, back when uh, in the 80s, when um, Wong's student, he, he wrote an official karate magazine about the fight. He presented Wong's version yeah. of the fight. It'll come to me. I think his first name is Michael, but I could be wrong. But anyway, he presented Wong's side. Mm. And then other students of Wong presented essentially an echo of what he said. Uh, Rick Wing in his book, Showdown in Oakland, to a lesser extent, Charles Russo, and then Matthew Pauly repeated what was in Russo. But to me, in the early accounts, Chin is basically saying, hey, this is a 20-minute uh, back and forth, and Wong Jack Man didn't use his kicks because he was a man of principle and he would have killed him, and he would have, uh, there's, you know, he staggered Bruce and made him spin around once in one account and three times in another account. But when I put the chronology to it, 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 there's these elements and these techniques and these exchanges that only come many, many decades after the fact. Hmm. So I would go to the earliest sources, the Chinese newspapers, for example, the back and forth in the press between Bruce and uh, Wang Jack Man or his representatives. And so you'd say, okay, that's the earliest. That's, that's before Bruce Lee was Bruce Lee and... and Wong students had a had skin in the game. So this holds a certain status. And then you look for the testimony from people that were there. And, and by far, the preponderance of evidence comes down on the side that this was not more than about two minutes, the fight. That Wong was taken down and that he yielded. Mm. And that was it. It wasn't, I won't say it was a decisive fight, like the, the fight with Nakachi in Seattle, where the guy was out cold with a fractured skull. Yeah, covered in blood. <laughs> yeah. This, you know, this fight, this encounter should be held up as one of the most significant in North American martial arts history is, is preposterous. This was an exchange mm. between two people who didn't really land, apart from Bruce's opening salvo, never really landed much in the way of an effective technique. And one guy ran out of gas at just the right time that the other guy gave up. And that was the end of the fight. And it was clearly instigated by David Chin. And I think from the Chinatown Brigade, interestingly enough, out of the, uh, the Tai Chi Club. And, and, and I don't believe in, in doing my research that this was because Bruce had insulted traditional Chinese martial arts. 
I make the point in the book that this had been going on for centuries, ever yeah. since Kung Fu was taught. You know, some new hotshot would come in town and he'd say why his art was better than the art everyone else was practicing in town. Usually a fight would occur and the winner would get the spoils. He'd get the students and the revenue and the money. And, and so it was here. Bruce's mistake was that when he had come to the theater in San Francisco, he made an appeal for business. Those interested, come to my school in Oakland across the bridge. Mm. Well, that's okay. Now, now you're cutting into business in San Francisco. Now you're asking students that might otherwise go to some of the San Francisco seafood to, you know, go over to what Bruce is offering. That wasn't going to fly. The, the, the masters in San Francisco, they didn't care what Bruce did or said as long as he did it in Los Angeles or wherever he was. As soon as it went into their hometown, something had to be done. And there had already been resentment brewing toward Bruce because he'd sided with James Lee against Yoon, I believe was the fellow's practitioner's name. I could be wrong. That's my problem. When I write a book, I'm in 100% for the length of time it takes to write it. As soon as I finish it, it's out of my head. But... In any event, there was a resentment there about Bruce Lee. This was a young punk, essentially a, a university dropout who'd, who'd cozied up with dropout from, I think it was Ty Wong's, or T.Y. Wong's school in San Francisco. Yeah, that's and, um, and so they, they, didn't, they didn't care for, for Bruce Lee. And for him to have the gall to come into the heart of Chinatown and try and uh, draw students away was not something they would countenance. So it was decided somebody needed to put this brash upstart in his place. And, you know, Wong et al. Uh, did not want to be seen as taking him seriously. Like he was the typical thing in martial arts. You know, my Sifu could, could kill anybody. He's so lethal. And, uh, and you want to maintain that. So you don't want to engage in an encounter where that uh, might be proven to be false. So they went on a hunt for a guy that they thought might be up to the task. It would have to be someone young like Bruce, fast like Bruce, athletic like Bruce, and someone who did a little bit more on the fighting front than push hands. So Wong Jack Man became the guy. And he didn't really know what he was getting dragged into. He was fairly new to Chinatown. He was teaching at the uh, teaching Tai Chi. He wanted, he entertained notions of opening a school. That's what he wanted to do. So suddenly all these guys became his buddies. Hey, you know, there's this problem. You know, we got a problem, this Bruce Lee guy. And boy, <laughs> or look favorably on someone that took care of that for us. And I mean, he didn't know. He was being manipulated hmm. by thought were his friends who basically wanted him to to deal with the Bruce Lee problem on their behalf without mentioning them um, so that they could be seen as not being involved. And, uh, you know, to Wong's, you know, credit and surprise, he went uh, two minutes with Bruce until he kind of recognized that, hey, this is, uh, I've been set up. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, and, and Bruce and Wong both said that after the fight. They were set up. Yeah. David Chin would go to Wong and say one thing, he'd go to Bruce and say something else, and then eventually, you know, the who's who's standing right in the middle when, when they collide? David Chin. So 
it was, you know, it was a vicarious form of combat for the Sifu in San Francisco to hopefully get rid of this potential threat commercially. Yeah, yeah. And uh, Wong was the guy they selected. But it's interesting reading your book that, as you're saying, it, it was just another fight to him. We had so many that yeah. it, it wasn't this amazing, great, like, no. revelatory experience no. where he finally put uh, his art to the test and changed everything because it didn't work, you know. It was, yeah. It was, yeah, it was just, there, there were so many other fights that are probably more significant to his development oh, as a martial artist. Definitely, yeah. I mean, Bruce's performance in that fight wasn't, exceptional. Wong certainly uh, didn't you know, suffer a horrendous beating. Um, no, no, he just gave up. Didn't, uh, yeah. As a Brazilian jiu-jitsu practitioner, I'm, I'm impressed that it ended up on the ground. <laughs> yeah, and um, and he tried to foot sweep Bruce after he gave up. Yeah, and a naughty little sort of after-the-bell style. Yeah, but it was, again, he was pissed off. Wong, you could see, there's a guy who's frustrated. He's been misled. Mm. He he was involved in an altercation that didn't need to happen, but he was led to believe that it did have to happen. And, uh, and you know, Dan, these were guys that could make his dream come true of opening a, a Kung Fu school in Chinatown. So, you know, it, they, they knew exactly how to say what was necessary to strike a resonant chord within yeah. a young immigrant. You know, it was shameful. But uh, nevertheless... Uh, yeah, the, the certain people have, and, and and Wong believed that Bruce changed his style after the fight because Wing Chun was not effective against it or as effective as it had been. He seemed but to that's, think... that's really not the case. <laughs> he seemed to end up fighting a lot of guys called Wong, didn't he? <laughs> a lot of guys he fought had that name. Cause, um, that's true. There's a bit at the end of the book where he's back in Hong Kong and he's challenged by Wong Shun Lung. Yes. Yeah, that was his, his actually his, his formal teacher in Wing Chun during uh, the Yip Man years. Yeah. Yeah, and was considered the best fighter in the Wing Chun clan. By some accounts, he had, according to Jesse, what Bruce told him was he'd had over 100 fights and, uh, and hadn't lost, you know, the Bama. Uh, so he was, he was a formidable and largely unsung hero of Wing Chun. But that's why Bruce liked him, because this guy knew about fighting. Mm. He was knowing art and know a form. He knew how to make it work in the streets, and uh, Bruce wanted to learn that. It seems to be more of a technical exchange type of fight, doesn't it? Yeah. Where, where they're sort of going, like, to see how fast I am? Is this fast? How's fast that? You know? Yeah. Like, can, can you hit my knee from there? Can you? Can you try? You know, that sort of. Yeah, well, they were both like chess masters. You know, that's kind of how I envisioned it. It was, Bruce was, had come so far from when he was learning. Because this is at the end of his life, isn't it? Yeah, it was like a month or two before he died. Hmm. Um, and Wong was old school Wing Chun. He was Yip Man Wing Chun. And there was, there was animus even then about Bruce creating this mongrel martial art that didn't, pay uh, enough respect to the Wing Chun origins. So Wong was of that camp. And Bruce believed, you guys are spitting on my life's work. 
you know, this is not Wing Chun, this is Jeet Kune Do. And yes, I've been quite open about how Wing Chun uh, was the path that got me here. But, you know, don't tell me I have not put in tens of thousands of hours to, you know, to improve my fighting skills and, and to make a, a contribution to the martial arts world. So he had, Bruce held tremendous respect for Wang Chunglong and, and Wang respected Bruce because they had, even in Wing Chun back in 1965, I believe, when Bruce was back there, they had done the sticking hands. And, I mean, nobody bested Wang Chunglong in sticking hands. He was, he was the guy. Hmm. And yet he said Bruce was scoring on it. Hmm. And that never happened unless Wong wanted it to happen. So he he had to respect Bruce's improvement and Bruce's skill. And finally, they had a impromptu sparring session at Bruce's house, and it was like two chess players. Mm-hmm. You know, um, both were very seasoned at that point, and uh, it wasn't a fight. Uh, they both number one, they respected each other too much for that, but it was serious. They wanted to score, but not full contact on each other in order to make a point. Bruce wanted to prove that his Jeet Kune Do was not Wing Chun. And Wong wanted to prove that, yes, it was. Yeah. And, and that what you didn't know in Wing Chun, you're going to find out now. Um, but after that, what was interesting was that it, it brought them closer together, as mm-hmm. combat sports often do. Wong recognize that yes you have you got something here and in fact i'm going to use certain elements of what you have shown me to teach my students because wong was very open-minded that way about wing chung as he said it's uh, it's it's your servant not your master you know so uh he bruce's contributions to jeet kune do through the wong show along the line changed or modified what was taught in wing chung you know, through that that lineage so that was that was pretty cool. You know, Bruce held Wang Chung Lung in tremendous respect, as he did Yip Man. So yeah, that's I guess that's my answer to that question. So um, what's your own background in in martial arts, John? Uh, it's spotty. Um, as mentioned, I took Shiroru Karate for a few years, boxed, but very very low level boxing, wrestled. Took a little bit of Tai Chi with Dan Lee, studied Jeet Kune Do with Ted Wong, dabbled in Wing Chun. But it's one of those things that as much as the martial arts, they, they beckon me. And then once I'm in them, I always, get them, I always get this question that comes into my mind, which is, why are you training for a fight you'll never have? <laughs> yeah, the, yeah, the eternal question. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Consequently, I, I've, I've never been able to answer that satisfactorily to the left hemisphere of my brain, so I, I tend to step back and not pursue it. You know, but then I'll see something like uh, some guy doing a tai chi for him on a beach with the sun in the background. It's like, oh, I want I want that, and then I want to, you know, see if I can make the bridge, you know, between the the beauty and the the poetry and motion of tai chi with the hard facts I know to be true about physiology. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, um, 
I remember when Leo Fong was alive, he, he created a, a, a method of uh, Qigong and weight training called uh, Qi Feng. And uh, I thought, that's kind of cool. Yeah, I could get into that. But then I just, I don't know, it comes and it goes with me. It's like, yeah, but that's, that's fair enough. I mean, like anything, you have to enjoy it, don't you? I mean, that's for me, that's yeah. the only thing that keeps me going. If I, if I wasn't enjoying it, I'd just stop doing it. Yeah, no, I, I agree. And, and if, if people enjoy it, I mean, I'm just, I'm not judging it. I'm just, for me, that was kind of, that's my internal conflict that I've always had. You know, yeah, so. yeah. I did Jeet Kune Do in the Ted Wong vineyard as well for a couple of years over in the UK. So I'm very familiar with that style of Jeet Kune Do, yeah. you know, the stance. Yeah. <laughs> Point the fist at their face, not in the air. You know, all that kind of, all that yeah. drilled into you. And I'm, I'm ever since then, I'm, I'm right-handed, but I stand like a southpaw when I fight because it was just drilled into me so often that the right hand, the strong, hand forward. Yeah. Yeah. strong hand forward. You know, and I, and I, I, to me, I can't do it the other way around. Now. It just feels wrong. Yeah, you know? it's funny. I'm the same way. Yeah. Uh, I, I now uh, an orthodox stance just doesn't feel right to me no i feel instantly adrift like yeah actually my my leg kicks are probably stronger because my right leg is behind me now and i can i can you know you've got more distance to cover when you strike but I, my hands just feel wrong i can't jab with my left hand at all it's yeah you know just to sort of does that instead of going in a straight line you know <laughs> i know yeah the same thing steve martin said that uh, about philosophy said with philosophy, you learn just enough to screw you up for the rest of your life. And <laughs> I found that with Jeet Kune Do that uh, once you once you do have that drilled into your power side forward, this and that, then it, neuromuscularly, nothing mm. else feels. Yes, exactly. Because we weren't really very big on sparring. There wasn't much sparring, but the, what there was a lot of were drilling, like with pads. You know, yeah. it was, so it was drilled into you like relentless. Which is interesting because Bruce was very big on sparring. Uh, right. He, it was, you know, he, he did have pads, of course, kicking shields and stuff like that. But that was for you to get the, the neuromuscular coordination to do that. And then it was sparring, you know, and, and uh, but again, that was Bruce, right? And that, that's one of the mistakes most people make in the martial arts is they try to, they believe that by doing a, they will become somebody else. You know, they will s somehow not be them. They'll be, you know, what they are will be discarded to become what they're impressed by. Hmm. I've seen it in bodybuilding. I've seen it in martial arts. And Bruce Lee, of course, is the guy. I mean, who didn't want to be Bruce Lee at one point? You know, someone had said, hey, listen, we will totally efface you. You will not exist, but you will become Bruce Lee. 99.9% .9 of the practitioners would have taken that, you know, um, that, but unfortunately that's, it's a, it's a fool's paradise because, uh, Bruce was Bruce. He had his natural attributes that we generally don't possess. There will be some that have other attributes that Bruce didn't have, and that would be their strengths to play to. But with Bruce, he was, he was self-aware enough that he knew what his, his attributes were and how to optimize them. Uh, I mean, try as you will, you're not going to have his speed. Uh, you, can, you can figure out how he trained and, and do it diligently. But if you don't have that genetic gift, 
then you're you're heading down the wrong path. You know? mm. Brilliant. Um, well, I've I've really enjoyed reading your book, Wrath of the Dragon. It's fantastic and so well researched. Really impressed by the level of research you've done for this. <laughs> oh, well, thank you, Graham. Yeah. So, um, what's next? What's next for you? <laughs> well, I'm working on a biography of uh, a bodybuilder friend, mentor of mine, uh, Mike Menser, who uh, was blacklisted in the bodybuilding community and became a victim of Arnold Schwarzenegger and the Weeder brothers. He challenged their dominion. But he was a friend of mine and also a guy who injected reason and logic into a sport or an activity that sorely needed it. It was uh, an industry based on, since its inception, on commercial interests. Mm. Uh, but uh, Mike died in 2001, and I've seen uh, a lot of people sort of running down a friend of mine, and I just thought enough's enough, you know. And as with the Bruce Lee book, this will be heavily footnoted. That's the book I'm working on now. Oh, interesting. I, I watched that Arnie documentary recently, the one that was on Netflix. Because, mm. um, I mean, bodybuilding's not my world, and I don't know much about it. So it was interesting. It was his perspective on everything, obviously. Yeah. But it was interesting to get a, a, a view into that world. Yeah. Well, it was It's. Uh... It was an interesting, it's funny, I got into that world through Bruce Lee, actually, of all things, because hmm. I was impressed with his physique. You know, at some point I recognized I wasn't, you know, that as a fighter, I was a pretty good writer, you know. So I, I knew that I was. I didn't have a, a career in uh, unarmed combat, but <laughs> everyone, everyone can look after their physiques and try and be in better shape and uh, the bodybuilding world at the time was the only one that spoke to that. It was mm. uh, used to have you know bodybuilding publications, and there were bodybuilders of various shapes and sizes and weights. And I looked for ones that looked close to how Bruce Lee looked, was gra and gravitated toward it. And then came to find out that Bruce Lee likewise did the same thing. Mm. So that became an interest, and from my humble perspective, it was imminently more pr uh, practical in terms of the physiological benefits that came back to me than was my training for a fight that I'd never had. You know, so, yeah, so that's, anyway, that's the book I'm working on presently. I, I suspect it will take me another eight months of writing and research before. Oh, I, I, well, I should look out for it. Yeah. Yeah, it sounds good. Interesting. All right, well, it's been a pleasure talking to you, John. And, and um, you, Graham. Thank you for Thanks. your time. Thank you for sharing your knowledge with all well, our listeners too. <laughs> You're very welcome and uh, it's been a pleasure speaking with you. You can find out more about the Tai Chi Notebook podcast at www.thetaichinotebook.com.